0: the guy got pissed at me and he stabbed me with a fork. I was scared to death. I was afraid he was gonna hurt my son. And it hurts to talk about it because I wanted to be the mother that I never had and I wasn't.
2: Welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. During the last two episodes, you heard the story of Devin Price, who's recently out of jail and working to start a new life for himself, free of drug addiction and crime. Devin was raised by his mother's parents, who did their best to provide a stable, loving home, while his mom, Linda Price, struggled with drug addiction. Linda is our guest today for our final episode of the Price Family Series. Linda's upbringing wasn't extremely traumatic, but somewhat. The house was full of misbehaving siblings, her dad was an alcoholic, her mother was verbally abusive at times, and she didn't get the love a child needs. Upon meeting Linda's father, her mother already had four kids. He came into the picture, and that's when Linda was born, as her mother's fifth child and her father's first. The parents were around 30 years old at the time, while the other siblings were mainly pre-adolescents. Despite being an alcoholic, her dad always managed to go to work, Both he and Linda's mom worked lower-paying jobs, but they got by. Linda rebelled and eventually left home and got pregnant with Devin. She was excited and wanted to be the loving mother that she herself never really had. Sadly, for many years, Linda struggled to make it a reality. She's thankful that now, although it took some time, Devin has become the man she always hoped he would be. They have a good relationship, and the past is behind them. Linda shares her own life story with us today.
0: I was four years old, and my mother was working, and my father was working, and the other kids were old enough to be by themselves and or out. Met a lady on the street over from where we lived, and her and her husband had three daughters. Well, she started babysitting me, and of course, I fit in with them. The mother was very sweet and understanding and... And talk to us, you know, as I got a little older, don't you know, see things. And their father was also an alcoholic. So it happened in both families with them and then and mine. So it was
3: kind of like normalized. Yeah. Do you still in contact with that family? And how, how are they doing? Doing wonderful. Actually, they moved out of Toledo. Her
0: their parents were from Kentucky originally, Harlan County. In 1983, Jobs were limited here, and they just seemed fit that it was time for them to move back. So they packed it up, left their house, and moved to Kentucky. What was that like for you? It was horrible, because it was like my family left me. So I went through sophomore year with crazy grades. I would skip school all the time. And junior year, I was doing better. Quit doing drugs at that point. Stopped smoking weed. Marijuana. And senior came around, and I only had to go to school until like 11 o'clock, 11 a.m. So I only went to school for a few
3: hours. And I had a job, was introduced to cocaine. And how did you get into cocaine? How easy was that to fall into that pattern? Well, like I said, it was in high
0: school when I did my first line, and it was at a party. I went to a party because we drank through high school a lot. I, I was able to buy wine, and I was mentally and physically. More advanced. We were like 13 years old. I was 13 years old and going into bars where men would look at us like, You want to dance? You know, buy us drinks.
3: Did you look quite a bit older than your age?
0: Yes. Okay. Also, our our mentality was too. We weren't that age really. I mean, we'd have a couple drinks. It wasn't nothing, you know,
3: crazy or anything. And we'd have listened to music and we'd have fun. Were you ever in any uncomfortable situations where you? Or maybe looking back, they were uncomfortable, but you didn't realize it at the time? Oh, yes, Benny. Now,
0: I wanted to hear I love you from my mom and dad. Because I heard it from the other family that I grew up with. Their mom and dad said that to me. They treated me as their daughter. And they told me I love you. And I, I didn't get that from my mom or my father. And I seeked out that love through men. My virginity was taken away at the age of 14 and I can't even count how many men I had been with just throughout high school.
3: At the time, did you recognize that you were a victim in this whole scenario and that it was like people were taking advantage of you or would you not feel that way? No, I didn't feel that way at all. It was what I wanted to do. Do you still feel like that now, or do you feel like, no, I was too young to make those kind of decisions? I was too young to make those kind
0: of decisions, but I was looking for something in the wrong place. I was just having sex to feel loved.
3: Okay, so now you've you've graduated from high school? Yes. I kind of, well, at that time, because, you know, they ask
0: you in the back of your graduation book. It says, where do you see yourself in five years and 10 years and 15 or something? And, you know, I haven't looked at that in a long time, but I know that I, in five years I had written, I wanted
3: a home that I could say was mine, a baby and a husband. So what you considered at that time was like, happiness would be if I was married had someone that loved, protected me, and I had a child. We were this perfect family, and then I could create everything that I felt I lacked. Yes. Which we know is, is, is very hard to create, right? It never seems to work out the way we want it to. No, no, because that did not work out within five years. Right, and so what were, the, what were those five years like? Well, like I said, I
0: turned 18, and I graduated in June of eighty five and in July I went first of all I was well I was working full time job and this girlfriend of mine said You wanna go to Florida? She goes, I think I'm gonna move there at work that I was working with at a ice cream factory. And she said, I said, Yeah, I'll go. Well, I quit the job and five of us adults got get into a four seater some kind of Mustang car it was, it was only a four seater anyways, because somebody had to sit on the hump in the back seat. And I was dating the guy. One had like a car, one had money. I don't know how much, probably four or $500. And there was, it was two guys and three girls. And I went home and packed my clothes and told my mom I was going. And she said, well, what about your job? I said, I quit. <laughs> she was not happy. So I did that. Went to, we went to Florida. That was a nightmare and a half. <laughs> we stayed at somebody's house that somebody knew one of us knew there was nothing but cocaine and drugs and alcohol all over this house and of course we're enjoying i was having a good time and i get home and my mother is so mad at me that i did that and i wrote them a letter and i'll tell you she found i found the letter she held it till she died
2: I wrote them a letter stating that
0: I did not like how they raised me. I didn't like them whatsoever. They were very, I guess you could say sexual. My dad would pinch her butt and stuff like that. And at nighttime, I'd hear them having sex. And, and, you know, I learned that. And from learning that, that's what I did with the sex. I mean, I thought that's what love was. So that's why I got into all the men I did, but I told them this in this letter that I, things I did not like and that I felt better and happier with Pat Nottle and, um, Kim, Diane and Cassie and I'm moving and I don't want to ever talk to you guys again. That's what I wrote. And moved to Kentucky, lived with Pat Nottle down there for, Oh, I was down there almost a year and came back to Toledo And moved back in with my parents, and it was kind of just like the same old thing. Uh, My dad drank, my mom bitched, he went to work, and I didn't want to hear that no more. So I moved back down there and met a guy while I was there, a short period of time. I had met him before, but we moved in together when I went back. But this guy was, um, I kind of forced myself, I think, more on him than what he wanted at that time, because he didn't want to really have, down there, you don't live together unless you're married. So I told him, I said, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have marriage, a bridal shower, and get stuff for our apartment. We're going to get an apartment. And and that's what we did. And we acted like we went and got married. And he did go along with it. But that was (laughs) only a short period of time, because one night, he come home from work, he gave me his check so that I could pay the bills or what have you. And the, this little town, it was in the hills and in the mountains and the only thing they had was a gas station and two stores, two small little carryout stores. And he gives me his check and the next day he comes home from work and, and he's getting dressed and I say to him, well, you know, what you doing? Where you going? He's out, I don't think that's the name of your business. Oh, uh, really? Well, guess what? Linda's got the attitude. I can do what I want, when I want, and how I want. So, I go cash that check the next morning or the next. Yeah, it was like over the weekend, and come Monday when he went to work, I cashed that check because they would cash it for me because they knew we were supposedly married, and I signed his name and they cashed it. And I packed up everything in that apartment that I could, and I left and came to Toledo. So that being said, he called a few times and he didn't care about his money nor any of the items, but he realized what he lost and he wanted me to come back. And sorry, ain't going back. So that's where um, I'm here, not even probably three or four months. And this is 1986. My sister works at a bar and I have a car. And I live with my parents and yeah, pretty much partying lifestyle, but not really drugs at that point. It's just uh, maybe a little bit smoking weed, but I didn't really like the weed marijuana thing anymore. And now I'm just going to bars and getting drunk and I'm getting drunk when I go, because that's my mission. Go get drunk and try to find somebody to get laid. So I, I did that for a long time throughout my life of back and forth and what have you. That's just what it was about. But at that time, I met Devin's biological sperm donor, father.
3: (laughs) Okay, now how come you, that's an interesting term for him. So you just considered him just a sperm donor and nothing more. He doesn't deserve a title of
0: father or dad. So he's a biological sperm donor. (laughs) And the reasoning behind that is because he never was in Devin's life. Okay. He pretty much chose not to be.
3: Yeah. Do you have any idea where he is now, Devin's dad? Like how his life turned out? Yes, he's under the ground. He's six foot under. Did he die of like anything to do with drug overdose or? Uh, He had cirrhosis to the liver. Yeah. Alcoholic.
0: So I'm in like 86 and met his dad and we dated for over a year. And then I ended up pregnant. Well, he beat me up a couple times. I went to Kentucky to stay for a few days. You know, there was no reason why I couldn't. I didn't have no ties or anything. I wasn't working. So I went and he at that time he cheated on me. And when I got back, he beat me really bad to the point where it was kind of I mean, he beat me where he punched me in the head where I had huge bumps. Nothing on the face. Um, and I left there and went to my parents I left the apartment where he was at, where we had been living. Um, but I went to my parents and I got in bed and I laid there and I woke, when I woke up, I opened my eyes and he's standing over me. So you talk about somebody being in like, uh, ready to to run and I'm in my mother and father's house and they're not aware of it as far as him beating me. So I didn't tell them. And he told me, you know, he's so sorry, blah, blah, this, blah, blah, that. And I believed him. We got back together and moved back. I moved back over there in the apartment with him and got pregnant. Then he told me that the child that I was carrying was not his because I was probably slutting around in a truck stop and got pregnant. It's like, well, I couldn't do anything to prove him to prove it to him that i knew it was only his kid because i hadn't slept with nobody else at that point i was in love with dave and i was so excited to be pregnant it was the best best thing that was going to happen to me because i was going to be the mother that was able to tell my child i love you and raise my son and be there every day for him
2: unfortunately things didn't go as planned linda did her best to be a good mother for devin but drug addiction prevented her from really being all that she'd hoped the story continues next. The Stand Up Speak Up podcast is supported by Stand Up Speak Up Apparel, an advocacy clothing brand co-founded by host Carla Stevens Tolstoy, and she was inspired to add two new items to the store based on Linda and Devon's stories.
3: Yeah, I just some of the the comments they made just kind of stayed with me and I thought, "Oh, I think that would be interesting." put on a shirt and one of them with linda that just kept coming back to me is cracked not broken because she's a survivor like her son devin and it just seems like she keeps hitting a wall but she hasn't broken yet devin's inspiration for shirts was a little bit more direct and one of them is just really simple don't sell meth (laughs) That's all the shirt says. Don't sell Mac. Just because his story just tells you that it's really fast money, but it doesn't end well.
2: StandUpSpeakUpApparel.com is the website, and the store does help us share these stories on the Stand Up Speak Up podcast, so we appreciate if you would drop by and take a look. Now, back to the story of Linda Price.
0: Through my pregnancy, Dave and I had separated out of that apartment and I'm not sure where he went but I went back to my mom's and then we got back together and got a house that was next door to my sister's and the landlord actually rented it to me I'm on welfare and I'm working uh under the table at a restaurant but I'm huge I weighed like 250 pounds when I d- delivered Devin. So um, I'm living in this house and it's like a big four bedroom house and Dave is an alcoholic so he spends most of all his money, uh, I'd say all of it on drugs and alcohol at that time. And He'd come home drunk and he'd eat, make dishes, dirty them and I told him I'm not cleaning up after you and, and dishes started piling and piling. Well, guess what I did with them? I threw them on the side and threw them, I wasn't washing them even though everything was fine and the day came Here comes Devin. The the baby's coming. I feel him. He was hungover, and he didn't want to go to the hospital with me. So my sister and my mom, my mom comes and picks me up, and and my sister would go to the hospital. So I'm pacing the floor, and here comes Dave. Okay. I see you. Must want to show me. See if it was your kid or not. His mother came. uh, Devin was born, and I had to have C-section with him because he was a big baby. And his mother comes up there and his oldest, oldest sister and says, he's for sure a papoose. So out of the hospital, we're living in this big house, and I have this little baby, and Dave's gone all the time. If he working, he's at the bar, coming home drunk, no money, and this ain't working. Devin was born October 17th, 1988. We moved in that house in September, and by February, I moved out. And Dave had to, too, because I was, like I said, it was my lease. I don't know where he went. He went to a friend's house or somewhere and I went home to parents with this baby and don't know what to do. So uh, now what do I do? And it hurts to talk about it (laughs) because I wanted to be the mother that I never had. And I wasn't. I have now, like I said, a baby that has no father, has no home, living with my mom and dad. And I'm working in a bar at this time. I go get, get a job and I'm working in a bar and cocaine comes across my plate and I'm doing that and I'm working nights and drinking and doing drugs and and my parents are there and they're taking care of Devin when I can't be be able either because I'm hungover or was up too late and I'm still sleeping my dad and mom would get up and change his diapers and I open an eye and it's like okay they're doing it so why should I I'm 21 and that's just how life was I can't
3: say I instantly got into drugs that heavy but it wasn't long after that was born. Did you just feel like you were stuck? Yes. Like almost not wanting to accept that your life would become what you didn't want it to become.
0: Correct. Yes. Like, like I said, I, I, I seen myself after high school having this baby, but having daddy and mommy and baby and house
2: mm-hmm. and being happy.
0: Yeah, of course. And I'm back at my mom and father's where my mom's verbally abusive. Now, were they in any way, shape, or form that way to Devin personally when he was young? No. Oh, no. They didn't talk like that. To, he She didn't talk like that to Devin. Devin was their world. And my mom and dad basically raised Devin. I mean, he doesn't talk anything about me and that, that, his story too much, but it's okay. I mean, I was there when I could be. The disease of drug addiction got me bad. I still hurt today from it. But I know there's no changing it. I can only be a better person for him today. They tell me, don't regret the past, but just uh, don't shut the door on it. You know, but I do regret. I do regret not being there 100% for Devin because he was my baby. And that was, you know, made me so happy.
3: Addiction is a disease, number one. And number two, addiction changes your personality, It it, it changes everything. Yes. And you're really not who you are. And I think, as you've said before, and and many others I've, I've interviewed have said that the addiction always comes first. Yes,
0: and it was. And I had to say that to my son at the time when I did get sober. I said, Devin, I'm really sorry. I need to apologize to you for everything that I have been through and I have done to you throughout your years or not been there.
3: That drug was more important than humor. As hard as that hurts. It actually changes your brain. It's got nothing to do with your willpower. It starts to change your brain. It becomes very physical. Yes. It was my master,
0: and I did whatever it wanted me to do to get more.
3: How did you make money for all the drugs and the partying? Well, for the longest time, I worked. I worked. I worked as a bartender, waitress. I've had probably over or almost 200 jobs. Survival forces people to be extremely resourceful. Yes. I had the mindset where it didn't matter if I lost that job. I know I can get, I know I can get another one tomorrow. If I put enough footwork in it, yeah. I know I can get it. I mean, it's interesting you still had that drive because a lot stop that drive. They don't even want to work anymore. Right.
0: But I wasn't going on no street corner. I wasn't walking no streets. Not that I didn't do that. I'm not going to say I didn't at some, some point in my life, but I didn't walk for it. and I didn't have to, I wasn't on no computer doing no kind of prostitution or what have you. I finally met a girl that did those to date and she said, you want to do a date and get some money so we can smoke? Uh, and I said, yes, ma'am. I didn't have to deal with losing anything or anyone because I didn't. Um, I didn't have anything to lose anything. And my mother and father always provided with Devin. I had uh, a welfare check and I have food stamps and I gave the food stamps to them. And I spent my welfare check on drugs and would maybe give Devin some some of it, but not much.
3: What prompted you from moving from cocaine, which you kind of had semi in control, to um, crack?
0: Well... I was hanging out with this older lady, she was a dealer, and I had asked her, because I, I knew back in the day that, that Dave had did it, and I did it once or a couple times with him, so I had asked this lady that I was with, and she said she knew somebody that sold it, and she introduced me to her, and there I was, off to the races. At first, I really didn't feel an effect from it when I started it, and then when it got me, it got me. I stayed up for three days and smoked, and it became my master at that point.
3: And what would that what would that addiction cost per week? At you know, from the early days right up until the day when you were a full blown addict.
0: You know, I really, I don't know, because I would spend, oh, good, hundreds of dollars. But I always was was with people or a guy. Again, I've dated men and had them by my side that had money or had a job or had Social Security or had something. So they definitely would spend all their money on me.
3: Yeah, it's amazing how that, that one's just, it just really takes hold of people, right? Like crack and meth and all of it. And so did you, what, what changed in your personality and how you dealt with Devin when you started to get really into crack?
0: Well, uh, I was working at the bar and that's when um, I met this, this guy and we went across the country. We went to Texas first and he beat me down there. I don't even know for what reason. And I had Devin with me at that time, and Devin was, so probably three. Yeah, probably about three. Again, I found somebody that was charming. Um, He was Mexican, and I thought he had money. I thought he had a job and had money because he flaunted himself that way. Now, I'm not really a materialistic person, but when it comes to the drugs, I figured, okay, he's got money, he's got drugs. And, yes, we did... um, do drugs together and that was when we left and he told me he was going to um take care of me, get me off the drugs. That's what he wanted me to tell my parents. And we left. We went we were headed to Florida.
3: Did you tell your parents you said, Okay, I'm taking Devin with me. I met this guy. He's really great. We're gonna move. We're gonna settle down. We're going to give Devin a nurturing family environment. And did your parents believe you when they said that?
0: You know Carla, I, all I can really remember is telling them that I was going to Florida. And other than that, I, I don't know at that time what they said, if, if anything. They didn't share their feelings with me, so they didn't give me any advice or say, no, maybe that's not what you should do or blah, blah, blah. It was, there was no advice given. No, all, <laughs> the only thing my mom did was yell and scream.
3: Okay, so you were just fixated on, I'm, this guy's good, he's going to get me the drugs, we're going to be this happy family, and living in more, maybe more of a fantasy world.
0: Right. I, my head was in fantasy land. It sure
3: was. And so you're in the car, you're doing drugs, and then you and, this, you and your boyfriend get in a huge fight at a motel, and he beats you black and blue.
0: Yes. Well, he was hitting me and doing things to me all the way dri- as driving. And we stopped at a restaurant. And Devin was about five because he hadn't started school yet. But he actually didn't start school until he was six. And it was in the summer. So maybe it was the summer that he was six years old. And when he want- my wife wanted to take-, take me to Florida, I said, okay, well, like I said, he, um, we stopped at a restaurant and I'm not sure what took place other than I can remember. He, Devin wanted pancakes and, and like a variety of food. And then he didn't eat it. And the guy got pissed at me and he stabbed me with a fork and I was, you know, traumatized. And the people in the restaurant seen, something. And when we got out of the restaurant, the highway patrol pulled us over and asked me if everything was okay. And he kind of just looked at me and gave me the look. And I told him yes, even though he just had stabbed me with a fork. And I told him everything was fine. So we got in the car and went on down the road.
3: Did you feel scared at this point? Or were you just kind of like, no, this is just, so you were scared. You were thinking that I I got into it. This isn't the best situation, but I can't call anyone because I told everyone this was the perfect situation. Right. Okay.
0: So at this time, yeah, he, after that, ha- that happened, he was driving my vehicle and he started punching me in the face as I was sitting in the drive- the passenger seat and, and he punched me in the nose and backhanded me. He's drinking and he's driving down the road. Uh, we got off the highway and he's driving down a road, a side road pretty busy side road, two lanes. And he's driving on the wrong side of the road. He's like, I'm just going to kill you Saul," And I was scared to death. And my son's sitting in the back seat with a blanket over his head as this guy just continued to hit me in the face. So then um, we stopped and um, how we had any money was he would go into stores like Kmart and steal something. And then we would go sell it in a pawn shop. And that's how we made it all the way to Kentucky. We were somewhere between, I believe it was somewhere in the southern part of Kentucky because I wasn't that far from my foster family to come find out. So anyways, we get the the room and he wants me to call my mother and tell her that uh, he's going to get me off the drugs and um, we're going to you know, try and get a place to live and we're going to stay in Florida for a while. So I have my mother on the phone and I'm telling her this. And as I'm doing that, he punches me in the stomach and burns me with a cigarette. And my face is all messed up, black and blue. And, um, in the meantime, while he's hitting me, he puts Devin, he tells Devin to go to the bathroom and he put him in the one in the bathroom. And, um, this guy continued to hit me. And when I got off the phone, was talking to my mother, I don't even know what the conversation said other than I told her that he was going to help me get off the drugs and I was going to stay down there for a while. And she was happy to hear that. I believe that when I found, when everything turned around, I think she had some signs and thought that this man was not what I said he was and wasn't what was best for me. So I tell after he's beat me, stabbed me with the fork and, and burned me and my face is all messed up. I said to, I, I talked to my son and he said he was hungry and I told him, I said, we want to go get something to eat. He goes, well, this is uh, my last $20, so I'll go get us something to eat. I did not take anything, any clothing or anything out of the car. And when I got in that car and I got my son in the car, I drove and drove and drove. Grove, and I didn't know where I was driving, other than to get away from that man, because I was scared to death. I was afraid he was going to hurt my son, because I would have—I would have died. I would have killed er, him, or me, me would have been dead. Because if he would have touched my kid, I don't know what I would have been capable of doing. So I am a mental bat- basket case, and I drive, and I—I I see a hospital. I go to the hospital. And, of course, the police were called, and I said, you know, we were on the highway. I don't know where I was at when he's beating me. So they couldn't really, I don't think they could really do anything. And I didn't know where we were at in the hotel. All I knew is we were at some motel. And they kept me there. They x-rayed my face and did all that. I had a broken nose, black eyes, and Devin was fine. And I drove to my girlfriend's house in Kentucky. I called them and told them what had happened, and they told me where to drive to, or what you know what to do as far as where I was at. I, you know, asked the people at the hospital, you know, what city and stuff where, where I was, and I was in Kentucky. So I drove to their house and was able to be safe. I was scared to death that he was going to find me because I had taken him there prior to all this to my friend's house, and Diane said she knew there was something not right with him because we had visited them, and I took him. With me, and he got mad at me about something, and he pulled out half of my hair while we were there. Now, I didn't tell anybody at that time that he had done that, and of course, it only got worse when I was at staying at my friend's house and stuff, and i I got healed up, and I ended up going back to Toledo coming back to Toledo to my parents' house. And there was a letter sent to my mom's house from that guy stating in the letter that I'm lucky that I left because it was going to get worse. And I don't know what happened to him after that. I don't know if he stayed in the motel or went to Texas where he was originally from or anything in that nature. I have no idea what happened to him, but I came back to Toledo and I got went down to try to get some protective custody uh, against him. And they said, well, nothing happened in Toledo and bother this, bother that. They weren't able to. Well, I got a gun permit at that time and I carried a pistol because I was scared to death that this man, after doing what he did to me, I figured he was going to come back and finish
4: me. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes organizations and groups that we're passionate about and that of course could use additional support my mother and i have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people we want to encourage members of this fantastic stand up speak up community to come along and learn with us so along with our team we created this workshop featuring videos articles and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship Don't worry it doesn't cost any money and you don't need to make an account to access the information we want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness the ally workshop is split into eight parts including interactive quizzes and helpful videos it's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship the workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone tablet or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon.
2: Linda never saw this guy again, but she did have more relationship issues before finally settling down with the man she's with today. We'll get back to that, but first, an important part of the story as we move to learn about the tragic death of Linda's sister.
1: She
0: was my my best friend, my sister, and she ended up having breast cancer, and she went through the chemo and all that, and we still smoked and did things together. We She was working like a part-time job after the chemo stuff, and she was always in pain, and her arm was always swollen, and the crack helped her with the pain, and to, I guess mentally, I would think just to not have to deal with what she dealt with, with within her having a daughter that was a little, well, she was very selfish and um, spoiled to rotten. And the daughter knew something was going on, but didn't really say anything about it. And um, Debbie was always gone. And then there was nights she would not come home and she'd stay out all night. And then that just proceeded to get worse. And her husband found out because he was a truck driver and he wasn't home sometimes during the week. So, she ended up having breast cancer, had the chemo, went through all that, and then three years later, it came back. She had a mastectomy. She was not going through chemo again, she said, and she did radiation, and she was really ashamed of not having having both boobs, just having the one, and she was so scarred up. And at any rate, that happened in, like, March of 1998, and her lungs were filling up with fluid after the mastectomy and they uh, pulled out like two liters of fluid off her lungs. And then I'm not sure what they told her. I didn't go to her doctor's appointment with her then. And then, um, in July, in fact, it was on July 4th, they called me and said that she was in the emergency room. Her daughter called me and that her lungs were filled with fluid again. And, they admitted her, and they did when they did x-rays or tests or what have you, they said the, the cancer had returned, and it was between her chest and her lungs, and that was causing the lungs to fill up with fluid. Now, mind you, the do- her doctor was my doctor, her doctor, and my mom's doctor, so she knew how, what things were and how things were, and she sat, down, sat me down. Um, I remember my birthday was on the 15th of July and Debbie was in the hospital and she was doing good. My mom and I went out to eat and, um, we went and seen her and I, she looked good and she was doing well. She was able to eat and, and she had the tube hanging out of her side. And, um, then it was a couple of days later they had to do another tube. And then, um, the, like I said, the doctor was all of ours. We sat down with the doctor or I sat down with the doctor and she told me that she's not going to make it. And hearing that was just, uh, that's my sister. You know, that was very, very hard to hear. And I told my mom, and I don't know, my mom just kind of, she didn't talk. She didn't share her feelings. So I really don't know. And on July 28th, her heart stopped, and they called me. And I, of course, all high, And I went to the emergency room, and they had her on life support. I went to the hospital, and of course, all the family came. And I don't know. I was just in some kind of fog. Life time, life at that time, my head was just so round up in in drugs that I didn't even know what was going on. All they said was that all her organs were failing, and she went into cardiac arrest. Then, and that's where they put her on life support. And the doctors from the hospital said all her organs were failing and that she wasn't gonna make it. So I had to make the decision because her daughter was seventeen and they she was not legally married with her husband uh, with Dean at the time, father of Crystal, who she lived with. They were together for twenty years and I left her on life support for three days and Craig and I stayed the night at the hospital and I had him take her off life support on the third day because I can remember talking to my sister and telling her I would never want to be that way. And she agreed. She didn't want to be that way either. And when you have doctors telling you that she's not going to make it. So she passed away on July 28th, 1998. After my sister passed in 98, I, I just went full-blown using whatever could come into um, my hands as far as the drug, but I did that for, uh, I know, five years straight every single day because I was unable to handle the situation of, of all that that I, I went through with losing her and having to take her off life support. And my one brother said, well, maybe God would do something, and, I, you know, it's just very, was very, very hard.
3: So for those five years, where did you live?
0: Where I grew up and where Devin started to grow up, the big Jeep plant that's in Toledo, Ohio, bought all the houses and tore the houses down and paid my parents. They then went and bought another house with my two brothers, the oldest twins, because they were back living at home. They had gotten divorced and they went in with my parents saying that they would live with them to help them make the payments. And I guess so the house was paid off. There was no really anything else said except I'll live with you and help you. Okay, well, they bought the house and within two years, my sister passed away. And after that, my mom just um, went into a very deep bipolar depression where she was real high or she was real low. So that's how life was. And um, I'm still in, you know, after all these things with these men and traveling and what have you, I'm back at the house and that's still happening. (laughs) So again, my addiction has just been full blown. I'm, Devin's growing up and the door is swinging for me. So I become where I don't want to have sex with people. And my jobs are, I get a job, I quit the job, I get a job, I, you know, get fired or whatever happens, or I'm in between jobs and I'll have no money. So then I started stealing from them. My brothers gave my mom pretty good amounts of money and I would steal money out of her purse to, to support my habit. Then it came to a time where my mom figured it out. I mean, she would say stuff kind of, but she really didn't count that money. So I knew I was, could, I got away with it majority of it. Then she must have said something to me, I'm sure she did, and said something to my father and my father said to me, "Linda, you got to go. You can't live here no more. Devin can stay, but you have to leave." And it hurt me more than anything and I was so hurt by that. And I said to them to him, "All you guys want is Devin's money. You want the child support check because that's what I was getting at that time." Dave, I made sure I took, went to court every time he didn't pay I mean, he died only $6,000 in rearages because I figured if he wasn't going to be a father or a dad he was at least going to pay me and he did but he had to because he went to jail for it a couple times. I, that's what I my thinking process at that time was because they were running low on money one of my brothers and I had moved out already and of course got married remarried and bought his home blah 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 and I'm saying this as an excuse you guys just want uh, Devin and you want his money. Well, it made me very extremely mad on top of being hurt. And I gathered my things and went and got Devin out of school. And we started walking. And I called an ex-boyfriend of mine. Um, and he picked us up and he allowed us to stay at his house. But I didn't want to have anything to do with this guy. But I did because I needed somewhere to go. I didn't smoke for one month because Devin was with me. And then uh, one month passed, and um, Devin was staying at my mom's, so he'd go to school. And it wasn't too much longer after that. I said, this guy started smoking. We started smoking together. And he went from having a home, having credit cards, having a good job, to... Now, mind you, he lived across the street from his parents. He would hide his truck, so it looked like he went to work. He lost his job. We ran up every credit card he had and was about to lose his house. And I said, I can't do this no more. And I went back to my mom and dad's and they allowed me to.
3: What do you think it was about that these men that you kept finding attractive? Because, you know, you kept falling for guys that were really abusive to
4: you.
0: Yeah, I just believe it was just trying to get away from my parents' house and trying to go out and live. And then I would always end up with somebody who wasn't I don't know how I chose. <laughs> I picked the wrong one. That's all I know.
3: And how long many years do you think it took for you to break that cycle? Because you've now broken that cycle. You've been with the same guy for a long time. He's a he's a nice guy, right? So what do you think happened that broke that cycle of always falling for an abuser?
0: Well, I, I guess just finding Craig, the man that I'm with today. I didn't date anybody that was abusive after that. I dated a couple people and they were not abusive, but they drank and didn't really like them or whatever. And I was at that time hanging out with my sister and we were doing drugs heavily. And I met Craig and we uh, were together for about 15 years. And I had Devin living with me at a time. And then it was um, hard because I was still using, so it was hard for me to get up to take him to school and do that on my own. So Devin, just, we decided to leave Devin at my parents and I would stay with Craig at night and I'd be at my mom's during the day. And the days that I didn't make it, then my dad, of course, stepped in and he took Devin to school. And like Devin said, he made him breakfast every morning and and I was still uh, heavily using drugs, and I was um, bouncing back and forth between Craig's house and my mom's house. And when I'd go on a binge, I'd go back to my mom's and stay, and Craig would be mad at me. and But nothing, nothing um, verbal abusive towards me or any violence with me at all. Craig has been a wonderful person.
3: You both have a history of addiction, and so you have yes. both gone through with each other through I mean how many times did you guys try to get clean together
0: probably about 5 times we just I went to AA meetings and of course I'd go to I wasn't ready and didn't want to hear that I would go there and hear them talk about drugs and it just put it in my mind to go go use so I did finally I I was seeing somebody else and came to Craig and told him that I was gonna get sober and I was, you know, starting to go to AA and I was going to uh and they told me no relationship for the first year. And I said that to Craig and he kinda just stepped back and let let me do what I needed to do and um I ended up going to AA and getting sober. In that meantime I had gotten married and um moved to Missouri and i married a gambling addict
3: so craig is just now a good friend and you guys have broken up and you've yes and you met this new guy at aa did you meet him at aa yeah okay yes. and where's devin at this point he's living with your parents still
0: yeah right at that point he is and then i ended up getting an apartment and i had prayed and prayed that if i could just be a full blown parent for Devin one day before he turned 18. And I I believed in God, and I prayed and asked him to help me to do that. I got an apartment and was able to have it. I got a job, I got a car, and I had an apartment for one full year and took care of my son.
3: And were you sober during that period? Yes, yes. And so where's the husband from Missouri? Have you divorced or...
0: Okay. So yeah, then we, well, we moved out there and, um, like I said, he was gambling and we moved out there. I was traumatized with, I had Crohn's disease and I had to have, um, a small bowel resection and I was in the hospital and I remember calling Craig when I was in the hospital and, while I was out there, Devin had um, like a slight overdose and was in the emergency room and I had called Craig to go to the hospital and see what was going on with devin and he did and um, devin was was fine and i 'm in missouri and i 'm married and i 'm miserable so my husband was going to get three checks for one for moving and it was moving expenses for three years. the first one was fifteen thousand the second one was twenty, and I think the third one was fifteen well on the second the first check he moved and bought all the furniture for the house and stuff. And I came down with all the stuff that we had and in the house. And when that, I was there for a year and when that second check hit the bank, I was miserable and I was ready to move back to Toledo. And he had told me, um, Prior to me just making that decision, my husband told me, if you want to be back in Toledo, call your mother. So I knew if I asked him for anything, he wasn't going to give it to me. So the check hit the bank, and he left to go um, to the casino. And while he was gone, I had a girlfriend from the program I was attending on standby, and I called her. I went and withdrew $6,500 $6, from the bank, which was half of what was in there and only took some of my furniture and all my clothes and packed up a U Haul and on my way to Toledo I went. I called his mother first and told her that I had left and Said how miserable I was, and that he's a, a gambling addict and uh, wanting, you know, he's spending every check he's making and checking the cashes. And it just was, I was just miserable. And I said I couldn't put up with that anymore. So she hung up, and then he called. And anyways, I, I moved back to Toledo and I stayed was staying at my brother's, and I had talked to Craig a couple times prior to this.
3: Right now, you're still. Sober, correct? You're, you're, living, yeah. you're married yeah. to your gambler. and he was he, yeah. was he abusive or just a gambler?
0: No, he wasn't abusive, but he, he just had that mean look about him where I, I just knew what to do and I followed what he said, basically.
3: Did he like the lifestyle there? Was he happy where he was living? Where you guys had moved to?
0: Pretty much. But like I said, he um, took his paycheck every week and wanted to go gamble. And if I didn't gamble, he was mad. If I didn't want to go, and it's like, you know, Lee, I need money for cigarettes, and I need money, we need money to live and pay the rent, and he would want to go to the casino, and I was just miserable. Yeah. Because if I wouldn't go, there was an argument.
3: And Devin is now, where is he at this point?
0: That's when, uh, after I had my apartment and then I moved in with Lee, Devin had moved in with his girlfriend, the mother of his daughter. So he's living with her and her parents. When he had his issues with Jenny, he ended up going to move in with my brother and so did I. And so we're living there and he's doing his thing and I'm doing my thing. And I'm full blown with Craig in a relationship. And um, that was in 2009. 2010, I ran across some people that was doing heroin, and um, I don't know what came about. I can't really really put anything on it as far as anything going on in my life, any traumas, any anything, and I put a needle in my arm, and I did that for about six months between doing needles and. Smoking crack, and I overdosed in January of 2011. And um, after that, after that four and a half years, I would have to relapse. And I told myself, if I ever relapsed doing that four and after when I was sober for four and a half years, if I relapsed, I would put myself into a 30-day program here. And I did that. Wasn't out very long and relapsed again. Went to Florida and then went to a halfway house for six months. Came back to Toledo, was here six months and woke up in the middle of the night and I went and used. <laughs> and that that's just, I mean, I deadly woke up out of a sleep, went to somebody's house that I haven't spoke to in six months and knocked on the door at like two o'clock in the morning. And they opened it and gave it to me. So after all that, Craig and I, um, skip forward somewhat. I have been using for the last years in and out, in and out, in and out. I am currently on disability. I have Crohn's disease and I have neuropathy, dystrophy, some kind of dystrophy neuropathy, something in my neck where I had a surgery and they pinched a nerve. They did a second surgery to try to fix the nerve and I, I'm unrepairable. So I have in my right hand where I can't lift things, I drop things. I have pain in my hand constantly. Through all this, my Craig has been a friend and a son, you could say, to my mom and dad. Um, Even when I was married and didn't speak to him, he would take my dad camping. And he was there. He, He was always there for them. And he was there for Devin. Currently, Craig works and is sober. And I used to work. (laughs) I worked just part time um, here recently, but I quit. I've been behind Devin and supportive of him throughout his whole life, especially throughout his prison sentence. He's done a lot that I knew when he lived in Florida, there was a lot that he did make money in a call center. And I visited him in Virginia prior to him getting into the big game of the parts he did. I visited him then, and then it was shortly after that, he told me that's when everything just went crazy, as far as how what he was doing, how much he was making, and things that, <laughs> some things that he just said that I just didn't need to know, because it's like, really son? And then to look at his picture, of his profile at the jail. Now, mind you, when I say jail, I have been, I did overdose and I experienced death. They did not know if they were going to get me back. They pumped me with enough Narcon to actually finally do that once I was on the way to the hospital. But they said, uh, the girl that I was with, they said that they told her, she said they didn't think you were coming back, Linda. So I've experienced the death part in the Alcoholics Anonymous big book. It says you'll experience, you can either experience Death, institutions, and jail. Those are three promises that the disease of drug addiction and alcoholism will give you. So I believe I've experienced death and I've been institutionalized. I've not yet, through all my years of using drugs, have been in jail. Knock on wood. (laughs) I'm sober today, so I don't, hopefully don't have to think about that. Once Devin was born, and I started into drugs heavily, I would ask God, please show me the way. Show me, you know, put something in my life to help me, to help me to raise this baby, to be a healthy, happy man. I made it,
2: and he made it. Most people who become addicted to drugs can never kick the habit. Both Linda and her son Devin experienced severe challenges in life, but found the strength to overcome. They now have a good relationship Devin has begun living life to his full potential, and Linda has the son she always hoped she could raise. Thanks for listening to Stand Up Speak Up. In our show wrap-up today, Linda and Devin join Carla together for some final words.
3: Do you guys feel like you have such a unique connection, that you're almost best friends, like soulmates in kind of a strange way? Like I don't want to make it sound like it's an awkward relationship, but it's your only child. Correct. Yes, we're very close. You must have been scared a lot. I mean, if you lost him based on what you've told me what I I feel I know about you, I think you would have lost any hope for yourself to even live.
0: Yes, I would. You know, and I always told him I said I did tell him at times um when he was here before he even went to Florida, you know, one time he came to the door, my door, and I couldn't go down and open it and my boyfriend did and I I couldn't see him and he, he couldn't come into the house because, for one, I didn't trust him, and for two, I had I had to do the tough love thing as hard as it was.
3: That must be so hard because he's your only baby. You're you you yes. love him, of course. He's like I, I always say to my son. I only have one child. It's like everything that I hope for is like wrapped up in him. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so I'm sure that sometimes he gets claustrophobic with me, but I'm sure that felt the same way with you. So when you had to give him tough love, what were some moments where you almost broke down and said, I I can't, I'm just going to give him? Well,
0: I did because it was in that same time that uh, he called and it was pouring down rain and he said he had been living in an abandoned building and um, I went and picked him up.
3: And what did he, what did he look like when you picked him up? Like, what was that first meeting like when you when you saw him and he saw you?
0: He was it, he just looked horrible. That wasn't my son. I mean, sunken in face and real thin and uh,
1: soaking wet and yeah, just not good, not healthy.
3: Deppen, was that hard to make that phone call to your mom?
1: It wasn't because I was so desperate that. There, I had nobody else to call. I had been up for almost a week partying with this girl and she left me at this house, which a guy was living at, but it didn't have no electricity. And I had like been up so long, I fell asleep and slept for probably, I slept in this building probably for almost two days straight and when I woke up, I come outside. It was almost dark and it was raining and I didn't know if it was morning or night or what day it was or nothing. That was, that was probably, that was definitely a low point in my life.
3: Did you feel like when you went to jail for the longer stint, were you scared to tell your mom?
1: No, I wasn't scared to tell her. Yeah. I mean, she was, she cried when I told her how much time I was facing. I said, you know, it carries life in prison is the maximum sentence. And I said, you know, at the beginning, they wanted to give me like the seven to 50 year sentence. That was like the first plea. I mean, just to tell her that, you know I mean? That's such a long time. But at the same time, she knew I was uh, in a better place. I wasn't using drugs anymore, being locked up, and that I was safe. So, I mean, as safe as I can be, you know I mean? that's safer than being on the streets
3: using drugs. Linda, when you hear Devin talk about this stuff, what goes through your head?
0: Um, when he was out here on the streets, I was scared to death. I mean, I I told him, Mr. Duffin, I'm going to have to get life insurance on you because I just, I assumed I'd get that phone call in the middle of the night.
3: Would you guys ever, when you were both in your throes of addiction, would you hang out then if you're both were using?
1: There was a brief time right after my mom got divorced and me and my baby mom broke up and she threw me out and everything. There was a brief time of me and my mom using together.
3: And at the time, did that feel comforting that the two of you were doing it together and that it seemed more safe or something?
1: Uh, It was, I don't know, it was crazy. I mean, there was a lot of good times. Um, I brought my mom around all my friends, all my friends knew her and were friends with her.
0: I had gotten my settlement from my social security disability and we kind of. Took off. I mean, not, not from Toledo, but took off in the addiction.
3: Did you guys go through that money just with the addiction? Yeah.
0: Yes. Well, it wasn't all of it. I had $2,000, and we went through that in a short time.
3: And you guys are both sober now. Yeah. Right. And how, how does that go? How has your relationship changed?
0: Definitely better. Not that it wasn't okay when we were using because he was with me, and and I guess I thought if anything would happen, I would save him. But our relationship is much better today because we are sober. Like I said, though, well, not that it really was bad then, other than when we... I mean, there were good times. And other than when we would get into an argument or something over drugs. Other than that, I mean, I'm definitely still by his side. I have been all the years that he was gone in prison. You know, he called me just about every day and I send him money every month. And now that he's home, it's just like, I pinch myself every other day to know whether or not in a dream.
3: Have you guys dealt with the shame you guys feel? And I know that Linda feels horrible for what she put Devin through and Devin feels not so good about what type of son he was. Have you guys worked through a lot of that?
1: Yeah. I I mean, we've pretty much forgiven anything that's happened in the past. We all live in the past today. There's no reason to hold any kind of grudges or anger because it's over.
2: The Stand Up Speak Up podcast is made in Canada. Produced and hosted by Carla Stevens Tolstoy. Co-production, editing, and narration by Joel at East Coast Radio Creative. Copyright 2018. Find us online at standupspeakupapparel.com. If you have a moment, please leave us a five star rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to Stand Up Speak Up.